Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast. With you today, as always, are your hosts, Kaylee Frett, senior editor at Velo News, and myself, Trevor Connor, coaching and science contributor to the magazine. Today, we're taking on the topic that all our readers and listeners ask about. How to train if you only have 6 to 10 hours per week. This is such an important topic that we're actually going to divide it across two podcasts. Today, we'll talk about the big picture, the science of why you need to balance intensity and easy riding even if time is limited, and then we'll offer some thoughts on how to periodize your training. To help us out, we'll talk to one of the big names in training science, Dr. John Hawley and Team Cannondale Dratback rider Andrew Talansky. Let's make you fast. I am Kaylee Fretz. I'm the senior editor here at Vela News. And how do I get fast with a real job and six to 10 hours a week to train? So that really is the big question that we all want to ask. We know that top pros put in huge, huge volume. And that'd be fantastic if we could do it. But most of us have a family, we have jobs, and we're lucky to even get 10 hours in in a week. The reality is, as you pointed out, a lot of people, it's just six And so there's this unspoken belief that if you have six hours, you go and absolutely tear yourself apart for all six, and somehow that's going to compensate for the the lack of volume. The short answer is, to a degree, yeah, that's true. So does that mean that I should take my six hours and go out and and pound my head into a wall and go as hard as I possibly can? And and I think when you, particularly when you go from having a lot of time to having much less time, the natural reaction is to just up the intensity so that every single time you get back to your desk, you're just completely shattered. And it feels like that's the only way to possibly get any gains. Because if I just go out and spin for an hour, what does that do for me? That's the question that that people ask. And there's a lot of people out there really want to say, I can compensate for all that volume with some intensity. And there's even people in the research world that are saying this. There's certainly studies that have come out that show go out and do a bunch of sprint training, and you're going to increase at your endurance. And that, that was a surprise. That was five, six years ago that research came out. Every physiologist is saying, well, I never expected that. But you still have to be careful with the science. And so what we'll do over the course of this podcast is explain some of that science that actually is going to go a bit of both ways and then get to what I think you should be doing, which is ultimately ultimately a balance. And I'll give you a great example that I always love telling people about of why you need to uh, even be careful about the science. I remember reading a study a bunch of years ago, and and I I tried to find it, and I can't quite remember the name of the study, but it was something along the lines of high-intensity interval work is far more effective than long, slow volume. They said in the conclusions, yeah, you need to be doing interval work. Long, slow volume doesn't do anything for you. A lot of people quoted that to say, you never need to ride more than an hour. But nobody went into the methodology. And when you actually read how they conducted the study, they had one group do 22 minutes of, of intervals. But then they had the other group do what, was, what they were calling long, slow volume, but they were trying to match them for the amount of work uh, they did, the same number of calories, essentially, that they burned. So the long, slow volume group was training at a very slow pace for 40 minutes. 
So a better title would have been interval work is more effective than recovery rides for building form, <laughs> which isn't really telling us anything. <laughs> so you always have to be careful. We used to believe that the long, slow volume really trained some systems. It trained your, your more central systems, where the high-intensity work trained different systems. It trained your periphery. And that actually has been overturned, or, or we're starting to see something different. And what we're seeing is, no, they actually kind of train the same thing, which is why I'm saying, yeah, to a big degree, you can compensate for volume. And I hope you're ready, Kaylee, because this is where I'm going to geek out a little, if you don't mind, with the science. <laughs> That's totally acceptable. To our, our listeners, our, our warning right now about the upcoming science, and, and please feel free to cover your kids' ears or fast forward through this, this moment. There is a, a master regulator in our body for a lot of what we call our endurance adaptations, which are an increase in your, your type 1 fibers, an increase in mitochondrial biogenesis, which is our oxygen engines, an increase in our ability to use fat for fuel, and there's, there's several other adaptations. The master regulator is something called peroxisome proliferator activated receptor gamma coactivator 1-alpha, or PGC1-alpha for short. What they've discovered is that both high-intensity work and long-slow volume activate PGC1-alpha. So they essentially, once you go down these chains, they produce the same effect. And that's not what we used to think. And so this, when we saw this, we went, okay, great then do the high-intensity work because you're ultimately going to end up with the same adaptations and it's going to be more time efficient. Right. I mean, that makes it sound like I can just go out and, and ride as hard as I possibly can for an hour a couple times a week and end up almost where I was before. But I know from personal experience that like my threshold power hasn't come within 30 watts of where it used to be when I was, when I was training relatively full-time. And I've tried that. I've definitely gone out and done the, you know, every single day for weeks just on my head in the ground does not seem to have the same effect. Right. There's a little more to the story. And this is why we'll say that you can only compensate to a degree. Even though the, the end result is the same, they activate PGC1-alpha through different pathways. High-intensity interval work, they do it through the AMPK pathway, and I won't give you that big word, um, but it's basically a drop in the energy within your cells where the, the big volume training actually does it through what's called the calcium, just call it the calcium pathway. <laughs> um, I don't pronounce so good. Um, it's the Canadian in you. We don't blame you. you. No, so it, it basically, you, you see a change in the calcium state within the muscle cells, and it takes a long time to produce that. So it's two different pathways to activate PGC1-alpha. And there, there's two factors in that. One is there's a limit with the high-intensity work on how much it activates the, the PGC1-alpha. More importantly, what they show is you get a bigger effect, a bigger stimulus by activating two pathways, by activating both pathways to PGC1-alpha. So if you only do high-intensity interval work, yeah, you're going to activate that's, those adaptations but only to a degree. If you only do long, slow volume, same thing. You're going to activate it, but only to a degree. It's when you combine the two that you get a bigger effect, 
and you see the biggest adaptation. So that's why it's to a degree. The best training is still a balance of the two. Beyond the acronym soup that you have provided us, there are, there are sort of other adaptations that are going to happen over long rides as well. I would have to think, right? I mean, just simple things like, you know, the first time each year that I go out for a five-hour ride, like lots of other things start to hurt. My my shoulders maybe start to hurt or my or my neck gets slow and tired or you end up with these sort of little aches and pains the first time you go out for that long that you wouldn't notice over the course of an hour and a half ride. So there's, there's, more, there's more to it than just energy pathways and acronym soup, correct? Correct. If there's anything you got out of this podcast, I hope it's a bunch of really big words that you can take to your next group ride, go up to somebody, throw those words at them, then proclaim, you know nothing about cycling and just ride away. So where we need to get to, and thank you for taking me there because I'll, I'll talk this physiology all day, is what does this mean for your training? And there is actually one last little component that, that's really important. And What they have shown is that when you train above a certain intensity, so when you do these high-intensity intervals, you get what's called autonomic stress. And it's autonomic stress that leads to burnout, that leads to overtraining. Short version of what I'm saying is you can do tons and tons and tons of slow volume. It's not going to make you particularly fast, but you're never really going to burn out on it. But if you do lots and lots of high-intensity work, it actually push you to burn out really quick. Physiologists over in Europe, who's very well respected in the cycling community right now, did a great review on this. And what he sh- showed in the research time and time again is you see great gains from two high-intensity sessions per week. You don't really see greater gains by doing three, but as soon as you start doing three or even four high-intensity sessions in a week, you very quickly start moving towards burnout. And if you start doing four or five, you're only going to last a couple of weeks before you are burnt out and have to be on the bike. And that's true of amateurs doing six hours a week, and it's true of pros doing 25, 30 hours a week. And four or five sounds like a lot until you realize that if you race twice over the weekend, that's only two interval sessions a week. It's two, what, two races and, and, a, and a Tuesday, Thursday interval session, right. and you are well on your way to full-on burnout. Right. So if you're racing on the weekend, and this is – I actually have an athlete I'm working with right now where we just had this talk uh, this morning because he was starting to push burnout. And I was telling him, you have to limit the amount of high-intensity work you're doing. And so we spoke. He went, well, I'm only doing two interval sessions a a week. And I went, right, but you're racing twice on the weekend. You're actually doing four. So he needed to live it. Really, all he could handle was at most one interval session during the week and then the races. And he he only trains eight hours a week, seven, eight hours a week. So even that low a weekly volume if you start adding in too much intensity in there it's going to take you bad places if you're surprised to hear that only two intensity sessions per week is ideal even on limited time don't just take our word for it we caught up with dr john holly head of the exercise and nutrition research group at australian catholic university he's published over 200 studies and reviews that have really defined the science of endurance sports here's what he had to say about intensity work if you're looking at that intensity, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't do two sessions of intensity a day, and I'd probably only do two, maximum of three a week anyway. You know, with cyclists, probably probably two. When we've done our training interventions, uh, eight times five minute sets with the cyclists, which again, it's in the literature you can read that. You know, we've only done we've done three a week, and that's that's been tops. But any more, and 
I think you probably go over the top. I, I really do think two to three sessions at the top level is, is all you can handle of those real intense stuff. And when I say intense, I mean glycogen stripping, high carbohydrate, right. high absolute power outputs or speeds. And, you know, the actual work time, probably 30 to 40 minutes maximum. As Dr. Holly pointed out, top-level cyclists and coaches learn pretty quickly that the amount of high-level activity we can do each week is limited. So instead, the science is now focusing on how to best balance the work we do. One area in particular that's getting a lot of attention is periodization, or how to map out your weeks and months. You mentioned you mentioned Europe, which remind me reminded me of something, specifically Team Sky, which there's been a lot of discussion of Team Sky's training as of late. They actually Tim Carrison, who's is their sort of their head coach guy, recently sort of teased us all by saying that they're that they're doing something new and that, you know, everyone else will be doing it soon and they're seeing big gains from it. But one of the biggest things that Sky has touted is this well, they call it reverse periodization. You wrote a, a story, not necessarily about reverse periodization, but a similar concept recently for Velonews, where which involves rather than sort of a traditional big long base period moving into a build period and then into a peak period you kind of combine the sort of workouts that would be found in each one of those things into either a given week or a given month and you and you and you do them all sort of quite regularly it seems to me that given my six to ten hours that sort of concept would be particularly suited to my time constraints is that a good idea should i be trying to emulate the team sky model here should you be doing uh, some sort of reverse periodization model? And I will tell you, I, I am fascinated by reverse periodization. I have hunted down research on it, anything I can find on it. I've talked to people very high up in the cycling world, physiologists and coaches about it. I have found absolutely nothing. Interesting. <laughs> not a study, not anything. And every single person I've talked to says, yeah, we apply a reverse periodization model. Okay. Okay. What is reverse periodization? And everybody has given me a different answer. So I think it's a really big term that I'm not sure anybody fully knows what it means. But I think I when you're, you're, you're out on the group <laughs> ride, <is> for sure. <laughs> the, the concept is to completely flip things, do a ton of high intensity in the base, which is really appealing because it's snowing outside, it's cold, you have less daylight. Right. Yeah, then, I mean that's what that's what I love about that concept is like in January when I maybe ride, you know, 5-6 hours a week. Right. <laughs> and then you add the volume later on. Right. I got to go out on a limb here and, and <laughs> I, I would love to talk to the Team Sky coach. I've talked to other pro tour coaches who have certainly agreed with me on this. I will bet a lot of money that's not what Team Sky does. What I think has changed is the old model, the old, the old school was nothing but riding slow in the winter, and then you add intensity much, much later on. And I think that's been thrown out. And what you're seeing is high-level athletes are adding intensity, short sprint work, short high-intensity interval work, even very early on in the base season. And that is showing to have gains, and I do think there's a value to that. So, so I just I, I we had a big piece, a big feature on Ian Boswell, uh, who rides for Sky, American kid from Oregon. And he, right before I called him, actually like literally the day before I called him in, in, I think it was February, he had just gotten back from a two-week training camp with Chris Froome. And I went and looked at his Strava, and that was not high-intensity inter interval training. I mean, they were riding like 115 miles a day, just the two of them, which would suggest to me that no way in hell is 
Chris Froome doing intervals all winter and then doing base miles like all spring, which is, again, sort of that reverse periodization that we've been fed a little bit. The actual anecdotal evidence looking at things like Strava, knowing what those camps look like, would suggest that you're right, that they're, they are maybe peppering in a, you know, some high-intensity work, but it's still mostly this, this, this low-intensity, high-volume which is further evidence that whatever money I was betting on Team Sky isn't doing only intensity <laughs> in the winter, I should have bet more. <laughs> so I have to backtrack a little bit and say there hasn't been no research on reverse periodization. As a matter of fact, Dr. Steven Seiler and his group over in Europe published a study just this summer comparing reverse periodization to classic periodization. So they took top-level cyclists during their base season. They divided one group into what they called the classic periodization, and that group spent four weeks doing four by 16-minute intervals as hard as they could go. Then they did four weeks of four by eight-minute intervals as hard as they could go, so those were a little bit harder. And then finally, four weeks of four by four-minute intervals, which were the hardest. The reverse periodized group did the exact same intervals, just in the reverse order. So they started with the four by four minutes and built up to the four by 16 minutes. The really interesting, surprising result of the study was that there was really no difference between the two groups. They saw virtually the same improvements. Where there was a difference was they had a third group, which was the mixed group. They did the same three types of intervals, but they mixed it up every week. That group didn't see the same levels of improvement. So really, the message of the study was that in terms of periodization, it doesn't seem to matter that much as long as you are consistent. Relating to that last conversation, I caught up with Cannondale's Andrew Talansky on the morning of the time trial at the Amgen Tour, California. I asked him for his thoughts on periodization, Sky's training, and his own winter preparation. There's been this trend toward, um, well, like Sky calls it reverse periodization or, or block periodization. Are you still a sort of traditional base miles in the winter and build and ramp up kind of guy? Or are you are you throwing intervals in, in sort of January and February? No, I mean, I think I, I would lean more towards, you know, having intervals in there and, and keeping intensity going, not just purely easy for, you know, months on end. Because, I mean, I think you see the way racing is now. You go to Paranese, people are at, at you know, at maximum capacity, right, by Paranese, Catalonia, Pays Basque, Romandy. You know, I think the days of being able to ease into the season are kind of long gone. I mean, people show up at Tour Down Under at 100% ready to race. So, you know, I think there are certain guys who can ease into the season and they, they make it work. But, you know, personally, it's really not fun racing at this level when you're not at, uh, you know, where you should be. Um, it's just suffering. So, you know, I'd much prefer to, to throw some intervals in there and show up at the races ready. Has that changed over the last couple of years? Um... I don't think so. I think it really, everybody's focused so much on it, maybe just because of Sky, right? right. Because everybody sees, oh, they're winning, they're all scientific. It's like, <laughs> the, the, the concepts that they're talking about have been around endurance sports for ages, around running, swimming, triathlon, um, and made their way into cycling, you know, with targeting certain races and training for those events and the demands of those events. And for sure, I mean, it's natural that there's progress in the last 15, 20 years in training as a sport, you know, kind of changed to a, a much more clean one. And the focus became on what, how, how can you change the training or the diet or the nutrition, or, you know, to, to maximize your physiology. So I think it's just natural that that kind of progresses. I don't think it's anything revolutionary. I think cycling was just a little behind other endurance sports in that respect. Going back to the, 
and I'm a bit of a fan here, uh, Stephen Seiler, Dr. Stephen Seiler, uh, who's been doing a lot of research on this, uh, on how are pros balancing their training. He's come up with this model that's called the polarized model of training. What he did was he took endurance athletes at varying levels, all the way up to the highest level, and looked at how they were balancing out their week, how, how they were balancing the high-intensity work uh, versus the low-intensity work. And he broke it into to three zones. I mean, we typically think of, of five training zones. He had three. One was that really low-intensity, what we think of as just long, slow base mile rides. Then he had this threshold or above really high-intensity zone, which is zone three. And zone two is that in-between, and it's what some people call sweet spot training. What he found was again and again and again in all endurance sports, your, your highest level was doing around 75 to 80% in that zone one, around 15% of their time in that zone three, and virtually no time in between. What was even more interesting was he compared the, the highest level, world champions, Olympic champions, to kind of the next level down, national level riders. And the, there was no difference in the amount of training, the number of hours they were doing per week. The biggest difference he saw was the highest level riders were spending more time at low intensities. It was the, the next tier down that was actually doing more high intensity work. So the top pros are top pros because they really like coffee rides. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> basically, it, and they do a lot of it. And uh, you know, Doctor Inugo Samalan here in town, he used to work with with Ryder Hedgedal. And when he was working with Hedgedal, this is back when Hedgedal won the Giro. Mm -hmm. He had Ryder doing virtually no interval work. It was mm -hmm. all long, slow volume. But the other important thing about the, this balance that that Doctor Seiler talked about is the fact that it was pretty consistent throughout the year. Hmm. They were mixing the high intensity about 15% with mostly long, slow volume in the winter and during the season. They may, did maybe a little more high intensity in the season and a little more of that in-between work during the season, but that was it. Hmm. So, okay, so we've, we've kind of established that's the ideal, right? I mean, if you're looking right. at top athletes, that's the ideal, but you know, those guys are still, they have time for that, that long, slow, you know, zone one out of three kind of rides bringing it back to myself and listeners out there that are in similar situations i don't have time for that at least it would seem that i don't how do we apply that concept this balance concept to right. a time to you know to, to the time constraints of your average working stiff so that was one of the biggest criticisms of, of the polarized model is, well, that's great if you can train 25 hours a week, but what about the rest of us? Right. Seiler took that criticism, actually did a study where they took pretty basically recreational runners who were running about four to six hours a week and had one group train using a polarized model, exactly the, the balance I was just telling you. And then they had another group do what you see more typically, which was it was about 40% in that zone one. I think they did about 30% in the in-between and another 30% of high intensity. So a completely different distribution, but more along that lines of you've only got six hours, go and do a lot of hard training. And even in that study with recreational runners training very low volume, the polarized group saw greater improvements. 
that is it for today. We hope you learned a little bit. I certainly did. Thanks again for listening to Fast Talk, the Valenews Performance Podcast, and keep an eye out for our next episode. 